Welcome everybody to our ongoing nightclub interview series where my guest today is the really brilliant young neuroscientist Benjamin Barrett. I had so much fun talking to my friend who is really one of the leading voices. We talk about the state of the union of lucid dreaming in the scientific community. Is this a good time for a young scientist to go into this area? We talk a little bit about how Ben got into all this and also the relationship of idealism to materialism, which one has more explanatory power. Then we look at some of Benjamin's studies, one on the role of meditation in cultivating lucidity, why it is that meditators actually have more lucid dreams. Do we then talk about the potential for a magic bullet in inducing lucidity, either by pharmacological means like galantamine or through transcranial electrical stimulation? Ben then shares his tips for how to use galantamine. And then we finally turn to a really interesting look at Ben's most recent study, how to substantiate the claim of lucidity in deep, dreamless sleep, which if in fact can be proven, would be an absolute revolution in the mind sciences. So join us. I think you'll quickly see why Ben is indeed one of the great voices in this community. Hey, welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. I'm uh, actually really excited today to be talking to uh, a good friend of mine and one of the most impressive young minds in the world of neuroscience studying things like lucid dreaming that I have come across. And so as usual, I will do a brief, somewhat formal biographical introduction to Dr. Ben, uh, Benjamin Barrett, and then we're just gonna jump right in. We got a bunch of cool things to talk about. So Dr. Barrett is a research scientist at the Center for Sleep and Consciousness at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, specializing in the study of human cognition and consciousness. His work uses a range of behavioral and cognitive neuroscience methods, including electrophysiology and neuroimaging techniques. His areas of research include internally generated thought and perception, such as mind wandering and dreaming, self-awareness and metacognition, and the neurobiology of consciousness. He also has a particular long-standing interest in the phenomenon of lucid dreaming, which he has focused on in his research. And of course, that's why we have been on the show, so to speak. So thank you, my dear friend, for taking time out of your really busy schedule to hang with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. So happy to be with you. Yeah. So I, I want to share a little bit how I first um, met Ben. This was, I think, maybe four or five years ago. I was doing um, my second or third program, co-teaching, the great luxury of co-teaching with arguably really the, the kind of father of Western scientific lucid dreaming, Stephen LaBerge. And Ben was invited along um, to participate uh, in the program itself and also to work with Stephen in conducting. I'm sure you guys, whenever you guys get together, you're always conducting data and <laughs> collecting data. And so we hung out at um, Shambhala Mountain Center for quite a number of days. Um, I was immediately taken and impressed by his intellect, his passion for this topic, and uh, uh, have developed a relationship with him over the years. And some of the recent things that we've been talking about, I'm going to share with you. But before we get going here, Ben, it's always really great, especially for, for someone like yourself, to maybe share with our audience, what got you into this stuff? Um, you know, what, what was the original lure to study something and particularly as esoteric within the scientific community as lucid dreaming. So a, a little bit of your personal journey, both as a lucid dreamer and then how that inspired you to actually take this up as a career track. Yeah, um, so going back 
I, I wasn't a spontaneous lucid dreamer myself, surprisingly, maybe go, growing up. Uh, so I didn't have them really until, until college. Um, I was interested in consciousness. I've been interested in consciousness since maybe my early teens. And I was developing that interest uh, for a number of years, but didn't know about lucid dreaming. So I can speak to this more broadly, but then also talk about the lucid dreaming component in particular. Mm -hmm. In my first few years of university, it was just like one of these one of these late nights where I was poking around the internet, reading articles about consciousness, and I somehow came across Stephen LaBerge's Lucidity Institute website. Oh yeah, and that's where I read about lucid dreaming for the first time. I'd never heard of it before. You know, it's um, kind of remarkable to think about that today because it's I think things have really changed dramatically it's much more lucid dreaming is much more in the public imagination I would say today in part thanks to the popularization through films like Waking Life and Inception others um, but at that time uh, it really was not as well known and so I had never even heard of it and when I came across the Lucidity Institute website and read about it for the first time it completely blew my mind mm. I had never considered or thought that something like that could even be possible before, that we could be fully conscious in that way during our dreams. And it just completely blew me away. And that night, I had my very first lucid dream. <laughs> How cool is that? That's awesome. Yeah. And that's something that we find, actually. And we'll yeah, yeah. talk a little bit about that. But if it, we do find that for some people, if they've never heard of it, the first time they hear about it, you can sometimes get one that night because it's, it's so salient yeah. um, in your mind that it, it makes such an impression that that can carry over. Uh, so then from there, I really went on to um, cultivate my skill in lucid dreaming. I went to a number of workshops, including LaBerge's workshop in Hawaii, Dreaming and Awakening, and a number of other workshops as well, including with Alan Wallace and others, and also just bought everything I could, all the, any book on the topic, read everything I could get my hands on, and really started doing all the practices to, to increase my, my frequency of lucid dreaming. I, I've never been a, a um, super high frequency lucid dreamer, but I'd say at my peak, I was getting up to one or two per week. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and I've, my practice has waxed and waned in the years since then, just depending on personal circumstances and um, you know, work and so on. But uh, I, I maintain the practice to this day. But in general, what sparked me into that at, from looking into those topics at all was a broad interest in the nature of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And where that came from, I can't really say. It's something that I, I just became fascinated with as a young man. And I guess connects more, really more broadly just to an inclination I feel like I've maybe kind of always had since my formative years about the nature of this reality we find ourselves in. And I was this maybe little kind of like annoying kid at the parties going around saying, uh, you know, isn't it incredible how I'm looking through my eyes and I'm a different being than you are and so forth. My mom was, was um, working at the University of Texas at Austin. We had lots of parties with professors all the time. And I was always getting into these kind of uh, interesting conversations and trying to provoke people to see if they found um, the things I found fascinating just as, as fascinating. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to get into there. Um, you know, just 
generally about the nature of perception and so forth and how that my understanding of that has really changed over the years. And I think back on those early conversations with an interesting perspective now, but um, just always been interested, just always been to my core, fascinated by the nature of reality, the nature of our perceptual experience, the nature of us as, as um, subjective beings, and increasingly my, getting into the science aspect of, of things, trying to understand how that fits into our conception of the natural world and how, yeah. um, particular as your listeners will know well, consciousness is still the major lacuna in our understanding of nature. It's really the, the thing that we understand the very least. And so it's really one of the um, major endeavors for the next, next century or, or beyond to try to understand the nature of consciousness and, and its place in the natural world. Yeah, and is, isn't it an irony, Ben, that it's, it's the most ubiquitous constant aspect of our lives is consciousness itself, and yet it remains this, this uh, relatively intractable issue slash problem. And maybe we can circle back around that later, because I, I actually think that has to do with the, the fundamental axioms or, or givens that we bring to the world that makes consciousness the so-called hard problem. But let's return to that in just a second. I think what one of the things that really stood out um, with me that you just mentioned is exactly the, the reason I am so deeply in, interested in, in lucid dreaming and, and as you know, a particular dream yoga, that in the Buddhist tradition, the, the study of the nighttime dream, the, you know, they refer to it as you, as you well know, as uh, the, uh, the example dream or the double delusion. And therefore the intimation is that, well, okay, if it's the example dream, double delusion, what's, what's the real dream? What's the primary delusion? Well, that of course is what we call the so-called waking state. And therefore, exactly like you're saying, it's why I resonate with your work so much, is that my charter, my personal journey through lucid dreaming and dream yoga is completely resonant with yours, where we use it as a way. In fact, our, our mutual friend Evan Thompson talks about it this, in this regard as a, as a unique distilled form of consciousness that allows us to explore, in fact, the nature of mind and reality within that expression of mind. And therefore, we take the insights and extrapolate them back into, into the, this so-called primary dream. So I, I find that um, incredibly fascinating. And to me, it's just like fundamentally really the only game in town. But um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, you, you are uniquely situated. Would you, I think it's um, Alan Wallace had actually coined this term. Would you actually consider yourself uh, a contemplative neuroscientist? In other words, we'll talk a little bit more about this later. You, you've done some really fascinating studies about the role of meditation to uh, bring about lucidity. But is that a, a a tag that we could append to you. Um, how how involved are you with the so-called contemplative traditions who tiptoe into some of the um, territory that you're actually studying? Yeah, um, I think it would be. I think I could claim that that title. Um, others may disagree, but it depends on how broad your your conception of that is. I definitely have done a number of of studies on meditation and trying to use that to um, learn things about the brain and understand lucid dreaming in more detail as well. Um, there's, you, you could adopt a more specific um, take on exactly what that term means as 
something within the neurophenomenology. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I haven't done in just in terms of the empirical work I've done, I haven't done a whole lot there, although I'm very interested in that field and have a great deal of admiration and respect for the researchers that are doing that work, um, including Antoine Lutz and, and Evan Thompson's work as well. Um, but yeah, I'd say that perhaps lucid dreaming could be included within that. Mm -hmm. I think that one, one argument for making that, that kind of claim would be that lucid dreamers really are participant observers in mm -hmm. this research. They are part of the scientific process very much. And there's this whole kind of way of doing science, which typically is we experimenters come up with the protocols and so forth, and then we get our subjects and we study them and see what they do. But really, within contemplative neuroscience, I think the whole framework there is really more oriented towards a more mutual collaboration between those who are exploring the first person side of things through contemplative practices, which I think you could include lucid dreaming within that. Mm -hmm. And also the third, the so-called third person or the scientific or experimental component. And so I, th I do think that there are some ways in which lucid dreaming fits into that broad framework of combining insights from the first person and with the experimental uh, third person side as well. And so it's very much a partnership. And that goes all the way back to the beginning of, of research on lucid dreaming as well. As you know well, um, Stephen LaBerge's work, um, many of the initial scientific studies of lucid dreaming were informed by, motivated by, and made possible by the first person experiences right. of the experimental subjects. In some cases, the experimental subjects were the researchers as well. In other cases, they weren't. Uh, but this is something that I think has been kind of overlooked or downplayed within the sciences, the possible role, the very direct and um, collaborative role that the so-called subjects can play in this line of research. Oh, yeah. well, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to throw something in there, but go ahead and finish. Well, no, I just, uh, just, I think particularly within the field of consciousness, this is something that's very, very useful for the neuroscience of consciousness more generally. That's all I was going to. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not a, um, a scientist, even though I have tremendous respect for it. And, and I have uh, often interchanges with people like you and Stephen and, and so many others. What risk do you play within the larger scientific community in terms of things like confirmation bias, when in fact what you say uh, is both a promise and peril that that you're you're participant and and also the you know um, subject in the study. So when other researchers look at this sort of relationship to their work, do they look askance at it, or is it increasingly more accepted? that someone can be um, kind of have this dual role, this dual capacity in these studies themselves? I think it very much depends on the specific study. So it's, it would be correct in my estimation to say that for some particular types of studies, for some particular designs, it would be problematic. We do have to keep an eye on things like confirmation bias and things like that. There's a good reason that science developed the way it did with its methods, despite their limitations. But in other contexts, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so often this criticism comes about and it's very uh, much not nuanced. It's just kind of a blanket that's thrown over this. Oh, you know, 
we can't take that seriously because it's the, you know, confirmation bias. It's the same. How can you be the subject and the experimenter? But I think that is changing. I think that attitude is changing from a variety of directions. One of which, as I was just alluding to, there's a number of instances of particular kinds of research projects that that just doesn't apply. And so a more careful look into it quickly reveals that fact. And much of LaBerge's earlier work would fit into this category. Yeah. And much of the work on lucid dreaming as well, because one of the real strengths of the, that methodology is that we have objective signals on a polysomnogram. And perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about this later, mm -hmm. but there's ocular codes with the eye, that are made with eye movements and other types of, of signaling that can be picked up on an ongoing physiological recording. And just to take this as one example, a kind of simple example, there's no way that that can be faked. That just doesn't happen. And so confirmation bias doesn't really come into play with those kinds of things. Um, so you can do fantastic psychophysiological research with subjects who are trained with, with these methods. And their confirmation bias doesn't really come in. There's objective evidence, if you like, that they are lucid and that they're carrying out specific tasks uh, on the physiological record. So a number of other cases as well where that kind of concern just really doesn't, um, doesn't come in. But I think there's also increasing, just broadly, an increasing recognition that consciousness is a real problem that's worth addressing within the scientific community and that also we're going to need to take seriously and to, for lack of a better term, operationalize to the fullest extent possible the first person side of things in order to get uh, a handle on mind-brain relationships. I think a lot of the limitations that are being increasingly recognized within consciousness science and the neuroscience of consciousness were in part that we weren't taking the phenomenology seriously enough. And it's this imbalance that's often been there between the incredible sophistication of the tools and techniques and methodologies we have within the physiology and the neuroscience, but then so, uh, so much little attention on the first person side of things. Yeah. And so that's a place where I think really working with contemplatives, for example, working with people um, who have extensive experience with meditation and working with people who have extensive experience and training in lucid dreaming, for example, just to give a few examples, can be very, very useful for, for the research side. Yeah, super interesting stuff. But you, you actually came up with a, a comment that, that I think in, in some ways comes to um, one of the heart issues around the scientific exploration of consciousness. And, the, and that was your statement about consciousness is a real problem. And so let's, let's go into the deep end of the pool at least for a moment here, and talk about how, in fact, the fundamental assumptions we make about the nature of reality altogether. In other words, consciousness only really becomes a problem if it's, if it's held within the paradigm of materialism. And so maybe in this case, I'm, I'm going to be asking you to reveal um, some either overt or covert philosophical approaches, because whether we, we have them in, in the lens of our conscious awareness or not, we live our lives dictated on these um, assumptions, presuppositions about the nature of reality altogether. And, and by this, what I mean is that um, within, if we were to somehow 
alter our um, foundation and kind of transition into a more idealistic worldview. Like, uh, you know, the, the wisdom traditions, some of them are absolute idealistic worldviews where, where in fact consciousness is not a problem because consciousness is the nature of reality. And so, uh, <clears throat> and of course, throwing into this mix of core is the very famous terminology of Chalmers, you know, the so-called hard problem, right? Out, out, out of what my dear friend Ken Wilber talks about the Western view in this very playful way that uh, in, the, in the most facile um, kind of comment, but also quite clever that everything consciousness is just the, the result of uh, the play of frisky dirt. I, I just love that terminology. <laughs> so, so, so in fact, how, I mean, how does this, how do you work with this? Do you, do you land in the camp that um, everything can be reduced, mind is reduced to brain, um, and therefore that would, you know, perhaps reveal a materialistic uh, relationship to reality, and therefore within that paradigm, consciousness is a problem. How did consciousness evolve out of frisky dirt? But if that, if that fundamental paradigm is altered, um, and instead of mind being a, a epiphenomenal expression of matter, matter is a, a epiphenomenal expression of mind. So I know I'm throwing a lot of it out there, but I'm, I, this is kind of a big deal because in, in so many ways, the, the hard problem disappears when you make this kind of tectonic shift at the basis of your view of mind and reality altogether. So I'm just very curious with all those noodles thrown against the wall there, Ben, um, how that <laughs> lands with you. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely the deep end of the pool. This is a lot of fun. So, um, you know, I've, I'd love to get into this because I've wanted to pick your brain about some of these things too. So maybe we can have some back and forth on this. Cool. I'll just, I'll just throw a couple things out. Um, so, Let's see where where to start here. So I mean, just in terms of my putting my own cards on the table, I really don't have a particular, I don't adhere to a particular worldview in terms of materialism or idealism or anything like that. I consider myself just um, interested and trying to figure it out, but I, I have no idea what, <laughs> what, what what's going on really. Um, and I see advantages to the different worldviews, and I see the disadvantages. And so maybe they're all wrong. Maybe we're in a simulation or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but uh, so one, one problem that I see, one of the largest problems that comes to my mind, and I'm curious what you think about this, just to throw a number of things out, is um, with approaching things from an idealistic or from the, the perspective of some sort of idealism, you do have the you do have a different problem that arises. Let, let, me, let me let's make, this is my fault, um, Ben. Maybe we should be, define briefly um, to our listeners what idealism means, because I again I, I threw that word out. Um, most people know what materialism is, but maybe give us a, a, a brief definition of idealism from your understanding. I think it's worth um, tossing that out so people we're all on the same page. Yeah, and of course. All of these terms are very loaded and they have a long history in, in philosophy and many different types of uses. But when I'm using the term idealism, I'm, I simply mean that ultimately everything in the universe is mental phenomenon. There's no, there is no physical universe out there. What we think of as the physical universe is simply mistaken. And in fact, it is ultimately all mind. And that doesn't imply 
solipsism. My mind. That yeah. everything is just within my mind. There, it's a broader view than that. That there can be multiple minds and there can be connections between minds and all all different kinds of variations on that theme. Um, and then materialism, conversely, is the exact opposite. All all it is is material stuff, as you said. And that's um, one view that some people within science and and within neuroscience um, talk about, and a number of philosophers as well. I, I think that the the super simplified version of that is just completely wrongheaded. It doesn't make any sense at all. And this is something that I've been fascinated with for a while about how people can even believe that. And I think it goes really to the heart of these interesting and deep questions about the nature of our perceptual experience and our understanding of that. Because in fact, everything I'm seeing around me right now in, in the room around me is very much my, my mind. It's my dream. And I think that even within people, even within the community of people that does research in neuroscience and even on perception, it's very, very difficult to, to fully understand that, to really break through the naive realism that pervades yeah. much of our thinking on these topics. But so I'm very interested in thinking about that and how that illusion of naive realism colors people's worldviews and even philosopher and philosophers and scientists' worldviews on this. Because I think that if you really understand that, and this is one of the things that lucid dreaming can contribute to, by the way, and did for me very much so, I think if you really understand that, it becomes very difficult to adhere to some sort of functionalist or computationalist, purely notion of of mind in which we're thinking, we're trying to reduce it all and saying, oh, it's just the physical back and forth between neurons. Those, those type of views only seem to be coherent when we don't understand the nature of, of perception, in other words, is what I'm trying to say broadly. Mm -hmm. And that's, at least that's my own view. And just understanding the nature of perceptual experience completely shatters that uh, you know, any, any possibility that I might adhere to some version of that ideology. And it is an ideology. So that's out the window. Um, but at the same time, I do have a, a very great and deep appreciation of the scientific tradition and everything we've learned. And I see that there's this marvelous consilience, to use E.O. E. Wilson's term, mm -hmm. between the different fields of science. And so... We have incredible work in molecular biology and neuroscience and astrophysics and um, evolutionary biology and you name it. And there's this incredible mesh uh, between these different disciplines. And there's a, I think it's really correct to think of it as a model of reality in the universe that's emerged from this very rigorous tradition of science that makes a lot of sense. And so at the same time, it's difficult for me to um, completely just chunk that out the window because I think it has a lot of, of um, very useful, not just useful, but insightful and penetrating insights into the nature of the natural world and actually can explain aspects of what we do experience in our conscious experience as well. For example, why is it that I'm seeing a particular configuration of trees outside the window in front of me right now. Well, there's a whole explanation about from biology and other fields about how those trees came to be about, and you can take it back even further, how we 
came to be on a planet and and so forth and so on all the way back go go back to the you know the big bang if you like there's a whole system of of thinking between these different fields that can really explain aspects of our experience and what i was alluding to at the beginning was if we get rid of all that one of the things that's the challenge from an idealistic framework is to to offer up a, uh, an explanation of the features of our conscious experience and the various different aspects of our perceptual experience, for example, why is it that they have the particular features that they do? And that's another kind of problem that rears its head. You get rid of the hard problem if you move to idealism, but you do encounter other kinds of, of major problems to address that I'm not sure have been really adequately worked out. I'm curious. Well, and to, uh, yeah, I mean, these are really terrific comments. And so I'm wondering, is, is it, in fact, a cop-out to, um, or does it, have, in fact, have more explanatory power? In fact, I think in many ways, this is really one of the fundamental issues is, is explanatory um, power, and in a certain sense, almost even explanatory supremacy, uh, parsimonious explanatory supremacy. Like, you know, what what can, can give you the most irreducible um, framework for understanding the nature of mind and reality. And so what comes to mind along these lines is, is Spinoza and his double aspect theory that on one level, you know, he related it to mind and, and body, but you could say mind and matter, that, that matter is really gross mind and mind is really subtle matter. That there is this kind of, uh, this is my terminology, this kind of um, ont ontic plasticity, you know, that, that really, the world that we bring forth, this brings in the work of uh, Francesco Varela, Thompson and Roche, the world that we enact um, actually is, is plastic and it's, it's contingent on all these factors of which some of which you're pointing out, you know, the, the biological um, neural correlate aspect. And then I would throw into the deeper uh, kind of, um, oh, just, you know, co-conspiratorial factors that come into play to bring about the world that we have, that you also have cultural factors, um, most of which are unconscious into play. You have social factors, you, you know, have, you have this, this matrix, this, this collage of all these mostly unconscious processes coming into play to bring forth, to enact this reality. And, and, and therefore, very much like a dream, a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, where we land, where we dig our heels in and profess that to be reality is actually largely contingent on all these mostly unconscious processes that come into play to then reify the world that we then take to be axiomatic. Um, so I, again, this is marvelously subtle, complex, multifactorial stuff. And this is why I love to have conversations with people like you, because especially if you have this wonderfully agnostic world and worldview. And again, I asked Richie Davidson exactly this question many years ago. And originally I thought he was, he was being somewhat um, patronizing when he said, uh, when I asked him the question, Richie, you know, do you think, can, can you in fact reduce mind to brain? And, and he said, you know, I am completely open on this. And I thought he was just being polite to me because I was coming in <laughs> as a Tibetan Buddhist. But I realized, I, I don't think so. I think he's being totally true. And so when I hear that from you and I hear from Francisco Varela, who had, uh, uh, you know, obviously this almost lifelong trajectory of respecting the power of the open question. I mean, that's real, that's the basis of real good science. Um, and so, you know, to whatever extent that's really true for scientists, 
that remains somewhat of a question um, to me, but the fact that you profess that is super interesting. But anyway, a lot of tossed out there, but do you find there's any traction with this kind of double aspect approach to looking at things and this kind of ontic plasticity that, that what actually we enact as our reality that we, that we will then fight, kill, write papers about, right? Yeah. Uh, how, how much of that is, is actually the representation, in fact, of that reality or how much of it is, in fact, a co-construction? You know, how, 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 how responsible are we for the worlds that we that we bring into existence. Exactly. And one thing I wanted to clarify for my last point too is that um, consciousness is the only thing that we are sure of. Everything else is an inference from there because we only have direct access, if you like. I don't particularly like that word, but we only have the only thing we have direct access to is our experience. And so everything else is inferential. And I really do, um, I really do hold this agnostic point of view. I wasn't just, you know, I wasn't just saying that to, to figured, yeah. anything like that, because the reality is, I think anyone who honestly takes a look at our current state of knowledge, that's the right approach, I would argue, because we just don't know. Yeah. And the yeah. problem with really any anyone professing otherwise and from the scientific point of view, they ultimately have to give a kind of promissory note to say, oh yeah, but yeah, that consciousness thing, uh, we're gonna figure that out at some point. <laughs> um, but for now, you know, we're pretty sure it's, it's yeah, the, the brain does it somehow. Frisky dirt. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't rule that out, but also there is no explanation right now about how that happens. And so anything, anyone who looks at that, I think has to come to that conclusion that we just have no idea how it works, how, how consciousness fits into the natural world as described by science. And so I really think that that is the way to look at it, or at least you know, that's what I would argue. And that's, so that's the perspective I would take there. So in terms of getting into the, you know, how to think about the relationship between the two um, and connecting with what we were talking about earlier too, I, I think that a really interesting direction to go here is challenging what we think of or what we tend to think of as the physical. Mm -hmm. And so this is connecting with, you know, a lot of work in the field. And, um, most recently Donald Hoffman's, um, book on this. And Bernardo, Bernardo, Bernardo Castrop, right? Why, yeah, why, exactly. why materialism is baloney. I mean, these are some pretty clever, clever people digging some pretty sharp teeth into this topic. So exactly. And again, I, I think that um, in the past, our, our thinking has been colored by a kind of naive realism. We yeah. take the world of our experience to be the physical world. And that's just not the case. And so I think that's led us down a uh, rabbit hole uh, a little bit. And that a potential solution to this could be rethinking that that link, rethinking what do we mean by physical and making sure that we're getting clear on the distinction between the world that we experience and the so-called physical world that is underlying it, according to some views. And that does open things up a bit. Um, and, you know, it's like, what do, what do we mean? What do you mean by physical? Exactly. And as you know, well, as your listeners probably know, 
this has been a moving target over the last several hundred years in science. We, you know, used to think of the, the rocks and dirt and stuff out there as being very, very solid and we're so sure of them. And again, I think that was partly because we, we, we took the world of our experience to be the physical world. Mm -hmm. you know, the famous example of um, the um, kicking the rock and saying, I refute it thus to refute right. I, uh, right. idealism. But of course that rock was a mental rock and the experience of kicking it was a phenomenal sensation and the visual experience of, of seeing it was a phenomenal sensation. And so that's just a little example to show, you know, that wasn't understood. They, it wasn't understood that, that, the, that so-called rock was actually a mental rock. So and really getting our heads around that I think can help, help lead us in a better direction in thinking on this. Let me, let me say something right along there and, and, and let me see, bounce this off you and see if in fact this is too facile. So when you say something like consciousness is all we can be sure of and when we kick the rock, the only thing we really know is the phenomenal sensation. In fact, does that not in itself, that very statement, profess the supremacy of the consciousness only view that that really is the only so-called thing that we can be sure of? Is, is it basically just too simple, facile to actually even rest on that statement as uh, foundational for the idealistic view? Um, it's, it's tricky. I mean, I've, I won't profess to have the, the answer to that, but the way I personally think about it is that it seems reasonable that we, we could build a model of reality that's, that has some aspects of it that are inferential. So we, we end up with a model that in which we infer non-mental phenomenon, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, and that we do that all the time in science, you know, you know, things can be, we can postulate entities that can't be directly observed in ex explanatory models. I don't think that's out of bounds. Right. Um, so does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's actually very helpful. And even in the Buddhist, um, tradition was called pramana the, the teachings on logic and epistemology they in fact talk about exactly this sort of thing um direct valid cognition inferential valid cognition and then of great interest to practitioners is what's called yogic direct valid cognition but um yeah uh, boy this is such a fascinating array of topics and, and if you have more to say about this and of course there's a lot more to say about it, we can certainly pursue this but one thing i don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole um we can return to it. Yeah, or we can we can pack a couple of things. But the one thing that I think our listeners would would really be interested in hearing from someone like you, who's so just uniquely situated to speak about this, is let's backpedal just a little bit to the more I wouldn't say shallower end, but more general end of the pool, and talk about um, the general state of the union of lucid dreaming in science. I mean, how, how much is happening out there? Um, what, what do you see? I, again, I, I have some kind of follow-up questions along this, but maybe let's just start a little bit with that about what, what is the general state of the union of the relationship of lucid dreaming and science today? Yeah. I mean, there's so many different things I can say here. So I, I think that in general, it's picking up steam, which is amazing. I think that there is increasing, uh, interest in the phenomenon. There are a number, a number of different laboratories in Europe, um, you know, mainstream 
neuroscience or physiology labs that are doing research on the topic. And now in the United States, our laboratory here at UW-Madison and also Ken Paller's lab at Northwestern have been doing a lot of research. And that's a big improvement from just a few years ago when there really wasn't anything in the States happening at all. There was work going on in Europe, but not very much. Mm -hmm. So things really have been ramping up, particularly in the last five years. And the five years prior to that, it was kind of the ball was getting rolling again. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, there was this very fruitful and, uh, you know, remarkable period of, of research in the uh, 80s and 90s done by Stephen LaBerge and his collaborators, mostly at Stanford. Uh, incredible work. And a lot of it, I think, is being has been overlooked and doesn't get the recognition it deserves today, just because it was done, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Yeah. People have forgotten it's been kind of buried and so forth. But there was this very exciting, fruitful period of research. Then things really died down, though, for a while. And there wasn't much work happening at all. And we've really seen this uptick really in the last, you know, five, 10 years, getting, you know, even the last few years, much more, I would say. So that's been very exciting. Um, I, and I think that's a great thing for the field in, in terms of, um, you know, how it's, it's current state, I would say it's, it's a bit, um, it's a bit mixed. Uh, so the top journals in the field are now willing to publish research on lucid dreaming without batting an eye. So you can, you can publish something in nature, including you know, on, on lucid dreaming or science, you know, the top journals in the field. And um, yet one of the challenges remains with uh, grant funding and with um, fundable research positions. So yeah. those are some of the sticky areas that still, you know, we've seen in a, a bit massive shift in terms of publications, but still in terms of jobs and opportunities and funding, it's still lacking. Uh, hopefully we're gonna see that continue to change and this trend continue to, to go on this trajectory. We'll have to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, to, what, to what do you attribute the uptick? I mean, why, 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 is, why has there been a recent spike over the last five years? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in part, it's, it's, it is definitely a part of some uh, broader trends, one of which is consciousness research in general, as I'm sure you're aware, it's just been, you know, the last 10 years and the 10 years prior to that really coming on. Uh, but consciousness research as a whole is sort of in the same boat, I would say, still. It's like there's a lot of research happening, publications in top journals, yet funding and job opportunities are still scant. Um, but nevertheless, there has really been an increasing interest in consciousness and consciousness science. So it's part of that broader sweep, I think. And also research on other topics like mind wandering, for example, and some of my prior work was with uh, Jonathan Schooler and, and Johnny Smallwood on that topic, mm -hmm. I think really did set the foundation in some ways for um, making it quote unquote acceptable to sample people's subjective reports. And doing that kind of research, it really popularized research using so-called experience sampling, where we're collecting verbal reports of people's ongoing conscious experiences. And so that was one of a number of areas which generated interest and made it increasingly you know, visible and viable to do work in these on these types of topics. So I think it's kind of been lucid dreaming has sort of been riding the wave 
of yeah. some of these broader trends in the field. So how would you advise if, if there's a young potential scientist listening, and it's pretty hip, you know, that I, I'm, I'm sure you know this kid on TikTok who has like 900,000 followers, right? He, he pings out these 90 second little things on lucid dreaming. Um, how would you advise a, a young potential scientist, someone who's listening out there that's saying, wow, this is pretty cool. What, what, how would you counsel them? Where, what, what should they study? Where should they go? Um, where's, where's the current Mecca, so to speak? And, and how can someone gain some guidance from someone like you? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's so specific to the individual. It's going to be hard to uh, give a blanket answer to this um, because it very much depends on what one's aims are and what one's particular interests are. Um, you know, the perspective that one's coming at it. But if you really wanted to pursue a career in science and particularly on this topic, I would advise starting out with the really obtaining a, a very rigorous background and training in the hard sciences. Mm -hmm. Things are really, they're moving increasingly in that direction within neuroscience and psychology. And so having a strong background in fields like mathematics, physics, biology, chemistry, all of these um, you know, hard STEM fields are incredibly useful, even engineering as well. I don't mean to say even engineering. Engineering would also be a useful uh, field to study in going into this because there's a lot of signal processing and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I would first say, if you're interested in the topic, that's the best thing you could do at the undergraduate level is to try to get into a, a good university and just obtain a solid background in, in the sciences and the hard sciences. I think this is the recommendation I would give. And I think most faculty I've talked to would probably agree, I think, that this is the recommended step. This is what would be recommended for someone who's interested in going into neuroscience or consciousness science or lucid dreaming, any of these topics, really, it's the same advice would be to do that. After that, um, you know, it would be moving into looking for a PhD position. And unfortunately, as I alluded to earlier, there's only a couple places in the US that are doing that work. One of them's here and one of them is in Ken Paller's lab at Northwestern. I don't know of other mainstream laboratories doing doing neuroscience research on the topic of lucid dreaming, but that doesn't necessarily rule out one's ability to um, to do that. But of course, you know, you, you could look into opportunities at UW or at Northwestern. Um, it's, you know, it's only two places though, so yeah. that's not going to work for most people. Uh, another way to go would be to find an advisor who yep. is in the neuroscience program who is sympathetic and interested but maybe not hasn't so far done research on the specific topic or maybe is doing research on a related topic. Mm -hmm. Because I think this is something that maybe a lot of people don't realize that actually there's a lot of flexibility when you get into it. Well, it does depend on the particular lab you work in, but many times there can be flexibility at, in a PhD level in terms of the work you do. So you can be working on a number of different topics at a time and often, um, PhD advisor is open to you working on a topic that's of special interest to you in addition to the other work that you do in the lab. 
And so it, you may find, uh, you may seek out uh, a qualified professor who's doing something interesting or related or uh, who's sympathetic to, to research in this area to work with. Um, so that would be the next step is doing, a, doing graduate training um, and then after that, moving into a postdoc from there. And that's a little bit your trajectory, right? I mean, isn't that uh, kind of what happened when you worked, started connecting with Giulio Tononi in, in, in that community? Was that part of the path that you yourself followed? Yeah. And, you know, I, I wanted to do lucid dreaming actually as, as a graduate student, but I couldn't really find anywhere to do it. And so then I ended up, um, as I mentioned, I, I went to work with Jonathan Schooler and, and Johnny Smallwood at, at UC Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm where I worked on a variety of related topics. So I guess this is another iteration of that or another variation on that, on a potential approach to take is to study something that's, that you find interesting that's related. Yeah, like, like, necessarily like, have to be lucid dreaming. You're gaining okay. the skills and the expertise to do advanced research in psychology and neuroscience. Yeah, and the perceptual science is exactly what- Yeah, absolutely. Involved yeah. 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 And, you know, one of the things just to say that I didn't realize, but I now is very clear after having done postdoctoral research um, in a sleep laboratory for a number of years and done work on lucid dreaming. I used to think, and in grad school, part of the reason that I wasn't doing also some research on lucid dreaming on the side, I definitely would have been able to do that. But I had it in my mind, oh, this is so, you know, uh, this is this whole other set of skills and you need a whole sleep laboratory and I don't know how to do sleep research. And now I would say to a student, no, you don't, you don't need a whole sleep laboratory. And it's really not, it's easy to learn, relatively easy to learn the additional skills that you need to do the research. So you really just need a cot and an EEG system. And, uh, <laughs> You know, so you take your you take the, your ordinary laboratory EEG laboratory, and you just put a little um, mattress in there. You, there you've got a sleep you've got a sleep lab, and then all you need to know is you know learn some of the methods for sleep staging and scoring, and some other methodologies. But it's definitely doable. So that's great. That's a great image. I, I just love it. That's fantastic. So let let me uh, transition into one other area that I wanted to kind of bounce off you to to. Um, to just see how credible these, these following uh, proclamations may be. And again, it's always a little bit uh, uh, maybe delicate, touchy to talk about another person's um, work in, the, in their own statements, but you probably are familiar with Matthew Walker and his work and his best-selling book, Why We Sleep, which yeah. I actually really like this book. And I'm sure you know in this book, and I've mentioned this um, several times on this, this particular platform, that he, he only relegates about some three pages to lucid dreaming, which obviously to me is a remarkable in and of itself. And uh, the, the most compelling part of this, and I'm sure you know this quote then, is at the very end where, where he says, you know, he makes this outrageous claim that it's entirely possible that lucid dreamers could, not, could represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution. I, I find that re, a, a remarkable statement. And, and what I wanna do is first of all, see how that lands with you and see if, if it's too much of a leap um, to to look at actually, and this is I read, you know, some of the papers you sent to me were so awesome, especially the neurobiological basis of lucidity or the correlates. It's such a fascinating paper, and you know, again, with my kind of um, dilettantish approach to these sciences, I find it very compelling that um, 
some of the most evolutionary advanced uh, aspects, most literally double play on the word frontal, um, leading almost literally the frontal edge of uh, neuroanatomical evolution is in fact things like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the orbital frontal cortex, the precuneus. You know, these things I always give the image to people where they go, well, I, like, where are these things? And so what I say is, well, you know, this is the, if you were to take your eyes and just roll your eyes straight up, that's the part of your, you know, the brain you'd be looking at. And I tie this into the evolution thing because that's what apes, the apes don't have that. When they look up, that's why their heads slope back. And so on one level, I find it very uh, um, interesting as a kind of metaphor, but I'm wondering if it's even more than a metaphor, that literally leading the edge of neuroanatomical evolution are these frontal aspects of the brain, precisely a number of which come online in the lucid dreaming state. So is, is this just too far off the, the ledge to make these kind of proclamations? And are therefore lucid dreamers in fact um, hacking through the underbrush and leading the way of consciousness evolution? Well, I think it's, so I, I read that statement in, in Matt Walker's book also, and I was also kind of taken aback by it. I wasn't yeah. expecting that when I came across it. Um, I'm certainly thrilled that he has a, such a positive view of lucid dreaming. I'm not convinced by that statement. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, um, it's hard to see how there would be a strong evolutionary pressure on lucid dreaming, at least right now. I don't, I don't see that there is a clear evolutionary pressure that would like, increase lucid dreaming. But like, in other um, words, why, why it came about, right? What, what, what you're saying here is like, why, why did evolution bring about this phenomenon of lucidity, metacognition, right? Is that what? Yeah, you're no, there's different ways to, to think about this, and I, I think that uh, your question also points to this broader, you know way to think about this, which is what, what is lucidity and how does it connect with the features of cognition that make us uniquely human and that separate us from um, the other, our, our closest ape relatives. And as you pointed out, one of the regions that has really ballooned out in us is this anterior prefrontal cortex along with the lateral parietal and in the medial parietal cortex, the percunius. So there's this network of frontal parietal regions, which is greatly expanded in humans. And from all the data and scientific research as a whole in cognitive neuroscience, from what we know about the functions of some of the functions of those areas, so-called association areas of the brain or frontal parietal areas of the brain, is that they do tend to be with, associated with these quote unquote higher cognitive abilities or functions that humans seem to uniquely have. And some of those are things like metacognition or meta-awareness, which mm -hmm. is our ability to actually actively reflect and think about our own experiences. Also the episodic memory system. So our ability to, and our, our ability to do mental, so-called mental time travel through, through time. So I can project myself into future situations. I can project myself into a past situation and remember it very clearly, the exact situation I was in and so forth. That whole system is thought to be something that's unique to humans. Likewise, metacognition. And so there's been a lot of discussion about um, these functions and their relationship with frontal parietal cortex. And 
those functions are interestingly exactly related to the kinds of functions that come back on when we become lucid. And it's interesting how they, they seem to go together. So in the transition from a non-lucid to a lucid dream, you know, the, the textbook definition is just being aware that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. Right. And so that's the kind of minimal definition of lucidity. But what we find and what people report the vast majority of the time is that after attaining that awareness or upon concomitant with atta attaining that awareness, they also seem to regain the capacity for volitional control and also the capacity to engage the episodic memory system. And so the, the meta-awareness, episodic memory, and volitional control all seem to be kind of linked to this state shift in consciousness and the shift of lucidity. And it may relate to changes in activation within that frontal parietal brain network. Now, uh, there was, there's one case study. So uh, we only have uh, a study right now, which is a single person who had a lucid dream inside of an fMRI scanner. So there's no group level study, which is really one of the major things that we need going forward. And so, you know, I, caution is advised in terms of generalizing from those results because it's just one person who had a lucid dream inside the scanner. And there's also some methodological issues with the fact that they were doing a task during that, um, during that scan. But the, the study did find increased uh, signal increases in those specific regions of the brain. And in, in some of our recent work, we have also been, we have taken a slightly different approach on the same kind of thing, looking at high frequency lucid dreamers. So this is, these are individuals who are way out on the far end of the tail of the distribution. People who are having lucid dreams spontaneously on the order of every other night or more. And we studied these individuals and we said, we asked, you know, is there any difference in their brain structure or the connectivity of their brains? And what we found was that there was increased connectivity between those same brain regions that I just mentioned yeah. in that frontal parietal network. Yep. That also points to that. And then more broadly, just from what we know about the neuroimaging of REM sleep, which is the stage of sleep where lucid dreams tend to happen, is that REM sleep tends to be associated with a suppression of activation within those same regions as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's just so, so interesting. It also has... I think potential real applicability because you know I teach a lot uh, on dream yoga in particular, and so I'm relatively facile with Eastern so-called Eastern induction methods. But I have to say, Ben, um, I find the Western induction methods to be more efficacious for those in the West. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you about this, and you you suggest this briefly in your paper, so I want you to to share with our audience a little bit about your study here, is that in fact using the these principles of neural phenomenology and again that's a big loaded term neural basically means there are brain signatures to in this case dream experiences so when you're in a lucid dream state just like ben was saying there are certain neurological signals um, signatures in the brain that light up and so with that said it, it it follows that that potentially therefore one could in fact target these areas of the brain using things like transcranial electrical stimulation or even pharmacological agents to actually bring about lucidity with more constancy. And so when you throw your javelin into the future, do you see this as real potential, um, the, the so-called magic silver bullet that eventually we can, I know Ursula Voss and others who've been working with this a little bit, but what is, what is your read on the potentiality of in fact having this kind of magic bullet where instead of struggling with all these phenomenological approaches and all the mind training, 
we can go right to the hardware, to the neural signatures and, and trigger those puppies to bring about the phenomenological experience. I mean, do you get optimistic about that or do you think there's just way too early to make that kind of leap? Well, yeah, I mean, I am optimistic. I think it's going to be a synergy though. And I think that the, the most effective approach is going to be a combination of mental set and mental training with additional factors on top of that. It could be that it turns out we're able to somehow activate the brain in the right way where you don't even have to do anything. We just flip a switch and you lose it. Yeah. Maybe. Um, we'll see. We're definitely nowhere near that right now. Uh, that's, you know, I don't think that's a bad um, aim. Certainly that that's something that would be amazing if it were possible. But from the work so far, I think the framework that we move more in is to say, okay, um, how can we further optimize people's opportunity to become lucid through additional techniques? And from the way that I currently think about things, it seems you have to, you, you kind of need to be in the appropriate mental set of trying to have a lucid dream for these additional techniques to really be effective. And so, you know, some of the additional techniques that have been explored are the, of course, the, the sleep masks, which send memory cues and, to the dream there that's a case where it's very clear right you it won't do anything if you're not in the right mental set because you have to be looking for those flashing lights in your dream as the cue to become lucid and if you're not in the right mental set it's not going to do anything um i'm just mentioning this in part because there has been some confusion in the literature about this to think oh you know these are all separate kinds of techniques but right. really it's being in the right cognitive mental set and then on top of that adding things in and of course, one of the techniques which goes back to the very beginning of the field is so-called wake back to bed, waking up for a period of time in the middle of the night, going back to sleep. And then the pharmacolo uh, pharmacological uh, interventions that we've been exploring. And in our work, we've been combining all those. So we you know we did this study, um, Stephen LaBerge and myself collaborated on this study, which we published in 2018, looking at galantamine, which is uh, an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So it's binding and blocking the substance that gets rid of acetylcholine, which is one of the main neurotransmitters associated with REM sleep. So the net effect is that it's increasing acetylcholine during REM sleep. And that's the main neurotransmitter. So it's mostly driving brain activation. So we're overall driving up brain activation through that approach. But it's on top of the mnemonic techniques and being in the mental set and doing the sleep interruption. And with that, Altogether, we were able to induce lucid dreams approximately 43% of the time with that combined procedure. And that was including people who had never had a lucid dream before in their entire lifetime. And so to some extent, we already have had some major success on the pharmacological front with making it much more accessible. And we're definitely excited about that and pursuing that further. Connecting with what we were just talking about, one possibility is that galantamine is increasing activation within that frontal parietal network. We know that procholinergic drugs, for example, do tend to increase activation in those same regions, particularly in cases where those regions have low activation. And that would be the case in REM sleep. So that would be a study that I would love to see done and I, I hope I can contribute to is doing an fMRI study to look at the effects of galantamine on the brain, how it is that it's in increasing the probability of becoming lucid by so much. 
And likewise, just understanding and optimizing that, te that technique further. We've only explored several doses. You could potentially think about combining it with other uh, supplements. So there's a lot more to be done in that space. Mm -hmm. In terms of the, uh, the direct current stimulation of the brain that you mentioned, Right. And so there, there was some initial excitement because there was this big paper that came out in 2014 in Nature Neuroscience, which claimed to show that you could induce lucid dreams with the transcranial alternating current stimulation, which is a method for non-invasive stimulation of the, the cortex from the outside on the scalp with electrical current. Um, but future work actually hasn't been able to replicate that. So there was a recent published publication which tried the same technique in the same way and didn't find that effect. Um, so uh, there's also some concerns about the methodology that was used in that paper. Oh, and so, yeah. so on the whole, we, we really, we don't have a technique currently that seems to work for, for that, but I really do think that that is a, a, a potentially fruitful direction to go in. I think that that's something to explore a very, very small part of the, the um, parameter space has been explored there so far. There's many more different kinds of techniques that could be tried that haven't haven't yet been looked at at all. And so, I think that's, that's a really exciting direction. So, so briefly, yeah, this is so great. This is what I love about your work, just how, how broad spectrum it is. So, two things here, Ben. One is uh, for people who are interested in using galantamine. What? How do you recommend? I, I, I mean, I can tell you my. First of all, I, I participated in one of these studies with Stephen, so I'm, I'm part of that end pool, right? I'm part of that population pool. And I have to say, when I did it, it was for me, it was a no-brainer. I could absolutely positively tell the placebo, four milligrams, eight milligrams. When I did the eight milligrams, you know, I was just like off the charts. And so um, you mentioned very briefly waking back to bed. My go-to method, in fact, if I absolutely positively have to have a lucid dream, is waking back to bed method conjoined with eight milligrams galantamine. Every single time I do that, <laughs> I have a lucid dream. I mean, slam dunk. So what, what do you recommend based on your own personal experience and um, perhaps more uh, helpful or equally as helpful is through your own research and study? How, how's, what's the best way to use galantamine to get the biggest bang for the buck with this agent? Because it's getting more and more traffic in, in your paper uh, was pretty instrumental, I think, in bringing that support. Yeah, well, there well, there wasn't a published peer-reviewed study showing that it worked. I mean, everyone kind of knew that galantamine worked, you know, in the community around lucid dreaming online and other places. Everyone sort of knew this. It was a, you know, something that people had discovered and, and knew about. But there wasn't a a study actually quantifying how effective it can be and showing in the with the proper controls and so forth in a double blind placebo controlled study. So it really did help bring it on the map because of course there's all kinds of things that people say work for inducing lucid dreams, you know, but yeah, many sure. of them often don't work because of placebo effects and other other things like that. So it was important to do that study and I was very happy to be involved in it. And likewise for me uh, it also works very, very well. So, you know, combining wake back to bed with, with the full dose of galantamine, I have a very high chance of having a lucid dream anytime I want. I would say though, that, um, currently we, I would advise caution in using it 
all the time, right? Just, just right. because it is affecting your brain chemistry, and studies about the long-term use in that way really haven't been done. Every once in a while, from everything that we know, for most people, it's safe. Um, I'm going to be very cautious here, though, since I'm on a public format, and just say that, right? You know, this is not health advice, and. Uh, I would advise people to double check um, with the with their physician and so forth, because there are some conditions you know, that would prohibit it, uh, your use or um, contraindicate using galantamine. So, especially for it's just for a recreational use like this, you really want to be be sure that you have no contraindications with other medications you might be taking or or underlying health issues. Yeah, and it's also when you're dealing with with this, it's in an unregulated industry. You know, as you know, studies have shown half the time. I wouldn't say I don't know what exactly the statistics are, but you don't always know exactly what you're getting, right? Exactly. So yeah, you have, be, you have to be careful about that as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I'd say also too, there is some an interesting territory here about you know discussion to be had about how much do we just want to be flipping it on and off with a with a supplement versus actually cultivating the practice. I think that flipping it on and off with a supplement probably doesn't have, this is being too modest, it does, does not have all the benefits, I will say, of cultivating the practice of lucid dreaming. And so it depends also on what one's motivations are. I think it can be very useful for getting a first experience of the state, definitely. And for uh, just, you know, if you, like you said, if you need to have one on this night or really want to have one on a particular night, then it's a useful tool to have in your tool belt. But I, I don't think I would advise it to be used as the main technique in the. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's absolutely in resonance with my view, Ben. I 100% agree. I use it very episodically every once in a while just to jumpstart things a little bit. I do, um, you know, you have tolerance issues. You've got all kinds of things if you're using it on a regular basis. I never really recommend that. But let's make, you know, so we've talked a little bit about the neuro end of neurophenomenology. And again, this is what's so great about your work. You've also done some really interesting studies on the phenomenological, uh, phenomenological end. In other words, talk to us a little bit about your really provocative research on meditation and how mind training um, can be brought to bear to increase lucidity. And, and I have my own two cents I can throw into the end because you know when I do these informal polls, literally at every program I do, Ben, um, I always ask you know how many people here have had a lucid dream, a number of hands go up. How many people here are meditators, a number of hands go up. It's, it's virtually isomorphic. I mean, you have that correlation is pretty darn direct. So my anecdotal information, uh, the so-called polling has, has absolutely resonated with your own work. But talk to us a little bit about this really important research that you've done about the role of meditation in bringing about lucidity. Yeah, well, that, that's been true for me too and, and resonates with my own experience in terms of practitioners of meditation that I've spoken with and also my own experience in meditation was that there was a very direct link between my meditation practice and my, my lucid dreaming frequency. And so going back to what we talked about earlier, taking our phenomenology and using that as inspiration for scientific research is a part of that whole agenda and I think can be very useful. And um, so 
you know, it's it's remarkable though, even though it seems like there's this lots of conceptual and theoretical connections between the two anecdotal polls and what people report, there seems to be a direct link between meditation and lucid dreaming. But up, to, up until a couple of years ago, when we did the study, there wasn't a peer reviewed study just comparing with the rigorous controls and so forth, meditators versus non meditators in terms of lucid dreaming frequency. And so this came out of a large scale study collaboration that our laboratory here did with uh, Richard Davidson's group, also at UW Madison, on the psychophysiological uh, effects of meditation practice. And so there was a whole lot of data collected for that project, including sleep laboratory measurements, waking tasks, emotion tasks, cognitive tasks, um, neuroimaging, and also lucid dreaming. And so we were able to take that sample, which had a large number of long-term meditators and a large number of, of matched controls, as well as a training component in which the control group was then bro broken up into a wait list, a mindfulness-based stress reduction training, meditation training program, and a, a health enhancement program, which is like an active control group for the MBSR uh, meditation course. And so we're able to look at both the long-term meditators versus the controls, and also if there, would any, if there was any influence of the meditation training on lucid dreaming frequency. And what we found was confirming everything that you know, your, your intuitions and your informal polls and, and mine and others and this has been discussed for a long time, we indeed found that the meditators had increased lucid dream frequency compared to the match control group. We didn't see any effect of the MBSR training, however, on lucid dreaming frequency. And I think that is mostly just due to the fact that it's a relatively weak intervention. It's only eight weeks. There's only a little bit. It's kind of just, you know, barely scratching the surface, a little introduction to meditation practice. So, I think that much more, there's a lot of promise that more rigorous interventions like um, sustained retreat settings, it would be a fantastic opportunity to do some pre post measurements on lucid dreaming frequency. Because of course, one of the problems with just comparing the meditation group versus any control group is that um, it's always a bit unclear whether the result is specifically due to meditation Yep. Or whether there could be some difference in the constitution of the per, of the the meditators versus the controls. Maybe there's some other third variable, for example, that also makes them have um, more lucid dreams, but it's unrelated to the meditation. Of course, I don't think that's the case. But really, the way to show it definitively would be to do a pre-post where you have um, you know people at time one, and then a meditation intervention or training program and then a time two measurement to show that the lucid dreaming frequency would increase. And so I, uh, that's, I would love to see more research there. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's, that's some of the work that we did. And I think it's really interesting to think about a little bit. Why is that? You know, why is it the case that meditation in, increases lucid dreaming frequency? There does seem to be this very direct connection, at least in some styles of practice. And that's another area that I, that I, uh, would like to see more work on. Yeah, it, well, I, I have some ideas. I mean, I have some ideas based on the traditions that I could at least ping your direction. And, and one is that, you know, one of the ways, almost synonymous to me in, in my vocabulary of lucidity, you know, lucid, lucidity is kind of a code word 
for awareness, right? A lucid dream is a dream. A lucid, a lucid dream is an aware dream. You're aware of the fact that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. And other synonyms for me, Ben, are, you know, lucid dream is a non-distracted dream. It's a mindful dream. It's a remembered dream. You know, it's a dream where you remember that you're dreaming. And so I think the antonyms here are also compelling that a, a, a non-lucid dream is a distracted dream, a mindless dream, a forgotten dream. And so, you know, like I often say this, what the poet Kabir once said of death also applies to lucidity. What is found now is found then. And so to me, it's like, you know, it's no surprise that if, if you're actually uh, practicing lucidity during the day with your meditation, a natural consequence of that proficiency, it, it's exactly like what Stephen says about the relationship between waking consciousness and dreaming consciousness, right? It's just basically same consciousness with or without sensory constraint. And so you're working with that underlying commonality, that common matrix in both those arenas. And so therefore, to me, it, it's, again, no brainer, but this is just a facile conclusion for my part that if you're unwittingly gauging in distraction, and that's the default mode network, right? I mean, if, if we're not practicing mindfulness, we default into mindlessness. This is why most people have non-lucid dreams at night, because whether they know it or not, they're actually unwittingly practicing non-lucidity during the day. And so if you flip that, and now we're volitionally, intentionally practicing my mindfulness, non-distraction, well, guess what? shouldn't be terribly surprising that that same level of proficiency, that same underlying consciousness with or without sensory constraints now represents that proficiency in lucidity at night. I mean, to me, the theoretical backing behind that seems reasonably sound. Does that land with you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think definitely in certain styles of meditation practice, for example, you know, the, the categorization that, that Lutz and uh, Davidson came up with of the open monitoring and focused attention and, right. and compassion, um, particularly looking at the focused attention and open monitoring styles of practice, and this can cut across many different types of, you know, specific practice styles and traditions. What one's doing in a focused attention practice is you recognize your mental content and then you shift your attention. So you learn to recognize when your, your focus has gone off of the target. And that's cultivating that kind of metacognition or meta-awareness, different terms that can be used. Um, but you're, it's, I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had here and just thinking about this, exactly what that, what that entails. But it does seem that it's almost cultivating a little bit of distance between the contents of consciousness yep. and subjective witnessing of those contents. And you, so you you can and just the capacity to recognize and, and cultivate that uh, meta awareness of when your content is in one state as opposed to the other is that that's pretty much what you're absolutely one of the one of the pathways into lucidity anyways oh this content that i'm experiencing is dream content not waking content and i know that there are differences and also differences in the way that the western techniques approach lucid dream induction versus some of the Buddhist techniques, but um, that is at least one of the ways. And so, but just more generally thinking about that kind of distancing, and that's something I'm kind of curious to pick your brain about too, is what exactly that, how do we think about that? But witnessing is a word that I, that I like, uh, and definitely also in the open monitoring style of practice, you're, you're kind of resting in that ongoing awareness 
of the content mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. being sucked into it. And so you're almost solidifying the, that capacity to, to maintain in an ongoing state of reflexive meta-awareness, for lack of a better term. Um, but so that, that kind of distancing, though, between the, the subjective pole, if you will, and the objective pole of the content seems to be strengthened through those types of practices. Absolutely, which... absolutely. It, and the wisdom traditions are kind of unequivocal about this, that, you know, that this level, this, this quality of differentiation from the contents of mind, um, as you're talking about witness awareness is actually a key. And, and so interesting, even in, in the, I mean, if you go to the other end, we, we talked about the two types of dreams, Ben, the, the double delusion, the nighttime dream, the daytime dream. Well, the Buddhists, again, this is going a little bit towards the really deep end, they, the Buddhists talk about a third type of dream, literally the dream at the end of time, which is death. And, and so therefore, the, the way this ties into that is that it, it's, it's very easy to lose, um, how do they say it? You know, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they say recognition and liberation are simultaneous. This, this is exactly why in the Tibetan arena, dream yoga came about largely as a way to prepare for death. So this is a very brief uh, kind of interjection from the Tibetan bardo literature that you know what they say, similar to the trajectory that I was just alluding to, that what is found now is found then, lucidity during the day transposes to lucidity at night. Well, what the Tibetans say is that that proficiency continues not only back, but also even more forward. In other words, that same type of proficiency will allow you to, in fact, maintain lucidity in the dream at the end of time. And that, that's a whole different kind of philosophical issue. But to me, the, the one for us is recognition and liberation are simultaneous. And so what happens is it's, it's the capacity of the mind to differentiate from the display of the mind. That when we go non-lucid, it's because we um, literally get uh, excessively involved in the display and the contents of the mind. And so by uh, differentiating, not dissociating, that's the near enemy of that practice, we step back that that actually kind of um, new perspective in itself is the exercise of lucidity. And so therefore, when you're in the dream state, that's exactly what happens at a moment of recognition, right? Same thing. There's a, a new sense of perspective that allows you to realize that this is in fact, in just another display of mentation, display of the mind now simply arising within that arena. And so therefore, you know, as they say um, in, in the literature, not only do meditators have more lucid dreams, my experience bears that out, but in the mind of a meditation master, all their dreams are lucid. There's no such thing as a non-lucid dream. And it makes total sense because if you're never distracted during the day, you're never mindless, you're always aware, that level of proficiency naturally extends and, and you maintain this kind of 24 seven or constant consciousness, which is actually one way to talk about the enlightened state from both the Buddhist and the Hindu traditions that you have this ability to um, dispassionately witness the display of the mind without getting unwittingly seduced into it. And, and that's, that's you know, one very powerful way that lucid dreaming dream yoga is used for purposes of soteriology, for, for liberation. I mean, that's, that's the whole process. That's what differentiates dream yoga from lucid dreaming is in fact coming down to this foundational level of freedom, um, not just that it's kind of psychological. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that into the mix to see if any of that landed with you or not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you, uh, I mean, how much we want to get into this here, but 
this is a topic that's interested me for a very, very long time and some, somewhat familiar with it experientially as well. In terms what, of thinking right. about lucidity also in non, um, non-dreaming states, I'll say. Yeah, right. exactly where I wanted to go as we start to close this up. So this is, this is the perfect segue. So I can either seed it with a question or you can start to run with it and then I'll follow up with a couple of questions, but this is exactly where I wanted to start to. Um, okay, great. Well, no, if you have, if you have one that you wanted to throw at me right now. Then I can no, 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 it's just, it's just, you know, uh, um, I wanted to share with our listeners. One of the reasons that Ben and I got back in contact a couple months ago um, is in fact around the potential to explore lucidity, not just in, in the dreaming state is unbelievable as that is, but even more foundationally to um, substantiate. And, and it, we had a conversation with uh, Thomas Metzinger, who's you know one of the world's, um, I think, most preeminent philosophers. And in this conversation that Ben and I were having with, with uh, Thomas, he says something, because he's also very interested in this as well. I mean, he basically said, and I completely wholeheartedly agree that if this um, lucidity in the deep dreamless state can somehow be substantiated. It really would, would represent a, a, a revolution in the mind sciences, um, because this is almost a, a, a you know completely antithetical proclamation. I mean, how can you be unconscious and conscious at the same time? Well, the wisdom traditions have been arguing this for centuries. They call it sleep yoga, luminosity yoga in the Tibetan tradition. And so Ben reached out to me, and, and we've been going back and forth about things like study design, um, you know, finding the population pool, which is a major challenge here, but basically how this type of, of study could be an absolute watershed in terms of understanding a mind and, and, and therefore um, somewhat correlated to that, you know, the reality that is disclosed by that mind. So uh, you can run with it, Ben, you know, this is in, in fancy language, um, minimal phenomenal experience, how one can in fact um, somehow substantiate this really outrageous radical claim that you can be sound asleep and yet lucid at the same time. So, so run with it. Let's, let's talk to our audience a little bit about what's going on with this stuff. Yeah. So there's a variety of different angles, I think, which make this an incredibly interesting state. And I completely agree with, with what you just said in terms of how important it is. And one of one of them is simply trying to bring together the knowledge that we have from the contemplative traditions with our current understanding of sleep as we think about it in science. So, of course, within sleep science, we have the stages of sleep, non-REM sleep, stage in two, in one, in three, and also REM sleep, and so on and so forth. We know from the, the literature that lucid dreams tend to happen almost exclusively in REM sleep, but... Um, there's been a little bit of work showing that that they can also occur in, in in one sleep, so that is just in the transition into sleep. But there really hasn't been any research in terms of looking at the possibility for lucidity in the deeper stages of non-REM sleep in two and three. And so part of the, part of it is simply bringing these traditions together and thinking about how they fit. How does this notion of deep, lucid, dreamless sleep fit with our no notion of sleep architecture and the different stages of sleep. It seems plausible based on the reports that we have that you that you alluded to in terms of 
this capacity for maintaining awareness throughout the entire sleep cycle and the entire night is true, then it would seem that unless the underlying architecture of sleep has been radically transformed, which I think is less plausible, the alternative is that that lucidity is being maintained in these deep stages of, of non-REM stage N2 and even in N3. Uh, so one task is simply to say, can we do the same thing that was done with lucid dreaming also with this lucid dreamless deep sleep state that is providing objective physiological evidence that indeed awareness is maintained into these deep lucid dreamless sleep states. And of course, the way that lucid dreaming was validated in the, the late 70s and early 80s by Stephen LaBerge and other researchers was through these ocular codes by um, you know, moving the eyes in a particular direction by looking within the dream. Also, there was some, there was an exploration of other output signals like muscle contractions and things like that. But many of those seem problematic. So we are, uh, it's possible that an ocular signaling could work. We don't know. That's one of the, the techniques we're looking at. Also looking into other types of physiological signals and how we might be able to use those to essentially um, provide objective evidence that this is occurring. So that's that's one part of it. The other part that you alluded to is that this state is what's been referred to in philosophy of mind by Thomas Metzinger, uh, as well as other researchers as the MPE type of state, a state of minimal phenomenal experience, because in the state, there are some phenomenological qualities to it. But at the same time, all the cognitive content has been depopulated. And there is very, very little in terms of perceptual content, nothing's coming in from the external environment. So it's kind of a, um, you know, one of the simpler um, forms of consciousness in, in some ways of, of thinking about it. And so it's very, very useful for neuroscience to be able to study these kinds of states, because in fact, many of the major current neurobiological theories of consciousness actually have predictions about what the brain will be doing in this type of state. And so it's actually a way of testing those different theories. And in particular, I'm here, as I mentioned at UW-Madison, as you mentioned as well, at the Center for Sleep and Consciousness, which uh, is, is um, Giulio Cianoni's group. And he has formulated a theory of consciousness called the integrated information theory, which makes specific predictions about what the brain will look like in that state. And so, there's a lot of interest within our research group here in, in studying these types of states for their relevance in terms of the neurobiology of consciousness more broadly as well. And then just to say that I think it's interesting in terms of this whole, this is the third point, in terms of this neurophenomenological approach and the conversation that's going back and forth between the first person phenomenology and the third person neuroscience, I think it would be very interesting just in terms of its own terms to study physiologically what's happening during these states because it's never been done before and no one's ever no one's ever studied this in the lab in this way and additionally comparing different different methods different ways into the state for example one of them as we discussed earlier is this capacity to maintain awareness from the beginning of sleep throughout the entire sleep cycle um, the entire night writing through all the different stages, presumably. But another one is 
you know, and that's that's something that's probably reserved just for a select couple of individuals that may be able to do that. Another one is this practice within dream yoga and Tibetan practices of dream yoga and other traditions of first becoming lucid. This is, starts off with a standard lucid dream and then using that as a platform for engaging in different types of practices, one of which can be actively dissolving the dreamscape. And what people have reported in doing this practice is that they find themselves in this very unique, somewhat surprising phenomenological state, which includes features such as bliss, non-conceptuality, and luminosity. And the question is, what does that state look like? Is it the same state as the lucid dreamless state earlier in the night? Is it different? Presumably it's being entered from REM, the REM sleep state if it's a lucid dream. So are they still in REM sleep at that point? Do they transition to some other state? What does the underlying brain look like? So I think there's a lot of interesting questions just around that more generally too. I, I, I just find it, <clears throat> it's almost a pun to say this actually breathtaking um, because the reason I say it's somewhat a pun because when we are talking one of the possible signatures um, in addition to eye movement, of course, is working with respiration. But I think this is, it's, it has so much phenomenal potential exactly in the way you're alluding to. And it's like, you know, one of the maxims that I, little jingles I play with now is that uh, awareness of absence is not absence of awareness. And again, the, the, what the yogic traditions would say here is similar to what we were talking about earlier, that if the uh, mind is not familiar with the very definition of meditation in Tibetan with these extraordinarily subtle formless dimensions, then um, what is not found now is not found then. And so therefore most of us, when we fall into deep dreamless sleep, in fact, fall into unconsciousness. But the so using the same maxim as before that if, if one engages in this case and not in merely the meditations, either focus awareness or even open awareness, but the full-blown formless practices like Mahamudra, Dzogchen, then in fact, that type of familiarity in the waking arena with these formless dimensions would bear some proficiency and recognition in, in the nocturnal mind. And so this is exactly the type of person that is being sought who has this capacity to, to either bring it with them, a kind of wake-initiated lucid sleep, um, which actually, you know, I, I think I shared this with you, Ben. His, Dalai, His Holiness Dalai Lama says, uh, considered among the most highest advanced accomplishments of a yogi, extremely difficult to do. Yes. But what you're saying is, and, and this makes sense completely from an inner yogic point of view, using lucid dreaming as a kind of halfway house, um, that in fact, in the Nyingma schools of the nocturnal meditations, interestingly enough, Lucid sleep is actually the main practice. Lucid, uh, lucid dreaming is, is kind of secondary. And, and the uh, assumption there is that if you maintain lucidity in the sleep state, lucid dreams are a natural um, expression of that, a natural consequence. And so therefore it makes total sense. And in the, in the instances when I've had access to the space, it, in fact, using the lucid dream as a halfway house. And there's several ways to do it. We've talked a little bit about this one is literally closing your dream eyes. For those of you who are listening, it's a very interesting thing to do when you're in a lucid dream. Close your dream eyes and one of three things will happen. You'll either wake yourself up because sometimes when you close your dream eyes, um, that actually reduces the movement of rapid eye, mo uh, 
re reduces the movement REM that is correlative to the dreaming state and, and it'll either kick you back into the waking state altogether. So it's actually one way to end a lucid dream. Second thing that can happen is you're still lucid, but things just go dark. That's not lucid sleep. That's just a, a, a contentless experience of lucid dreaming. So that's the second thing that can happen. But the third thing that can happen is in fact, you hold your, you, you close your eyes. What I have done with this is I also hold my dream breath. And, and then what I'll do is I'll actually plunge, you know, whatever, whatever um, arena I happen to be in, uh, whatever dream ground I am in, I will actually imagine myself as if, as if I was diving down below that. And I, I've had a little bit of, of serendipitous luck conjoining holding my breath, closing my dream eyes, and kind of plunging through the dream floor, which the reason I mentioned this, Ben, is it really makes sense from an inner yogic point of view, because what's happening, um, according to that model of mind, is the, the, the mind essence droplets, these bindus, are in fact dropping from the throat center into the heart center, which is where they abide in this deep dreamless space. And so therefore, these are some of the classic uh, traditional ways in the texts to work with this. Some of this I discovered through my own exploration, but this is, I don't want to go too far down this, this particular rabbit hole, but um, fundamentally the, the whole notion of exploring these dimensions of mind within the uh, kind of arena of the laboratory substantiating it could really be a, a complete paradigm shifter because it, it can radically alter the way we understand mind and, and its uh, extraordinarily subtle properties. So I, I, I'm super excited about being even marginally related to this kind of study. And the reason we're, one of the reasons we're talking about it is if any of you listening know people who have some facility and there are, they're out there um, with the exception of the really advanced meditation masters, there are people who have some facility with lucid sleep. And if, there, if you know someone like this, We'd be very interested to have you contact us um, to engage in some maybe questioning. And, you know, because the, the biggest challenge here, one of the biggest challenges is, is population pools, finding people that have these kind of mental Olympians, as Richie refers to them, people that have the proficiency to maintain this type of awareness. So this is a little bit of an APB announcement for those listening who may be interested and may, may know someone along these lines. Um, reach out to me, reach out to Ben reach out to Andy and uh, we'll get you on that cot and get you hooked up with the <laughs> EGs. <laughs> so any other final comments around that one, Ben? I mean, are you, are you uh, optimistic about the reality, the um, actualizing this? Is this something that you really think you guys can put together? Absolutely. I think it's very doable. Uh, like, like you said, we just need to find the right people to work with. And we have some people we're working with already, but in the, the more we get, the better. And, um, you know, it's one thing to be able to have this experience every once in a while. It's another one to yeah, have a regularity where you can be in a sleep laboratory and being monitored and wired up with all kinds of strange physiological, you know, monitoring devices and wires and so on. And tonight, you know, be able to get into that state. So like you said, we, you know, it's, um, it's, it is kind of an Olympian status, if you will. Yeah, there's a, there's a reason it hasn't been done, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, it's, um, I, I agree that they, uh, there are people out there that 
that can regularly access the state. And I don't think that it is too challenging to do really. I think that, um, you know, we can, I think we can pull it off. In other words, I think it's, I yeah. think it's doable. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's super exciting. So, well, Ben, I have to say what a, what a total delight to spend this time with you. I mean, you are one of these rare beings that just gives me so much hope that the, the scientific community can conjoin with the contemplative traditions to bring, you know, this, this wonderful cross-pollination between so-called East and West um, bringing together. And it, it's just so beautiful that the Western community, you know, largely through our mutual friend, Stephen Laberge and his absolutely pioneering efforts where now lucid dreaming, as you mentioned before, is, is really quite accepted in the community. That was not the case 40, 50 years ago. Um, so we all have to take a deep bow to, to Stephen Laberge, his, his tremendous courage, the groundbreaking work that he's done. And then the way he's handed this baton off to people like you. I mean, what you're doing is just so exciting. And uh, I think it's really uh, an encouragement to scientists, potential scientists out there to explore these dimensions because consciousness really is, you know, this is the inner Star Trek. This is the final frontier. It's an interior journey. And to whatever extent, because in the West, we, we're still so deeply affected by science that um, when the scientific community brings its stamp of approval, so to speak, that's no small thing. And I think that's the reason the Dalai Lama has these conversations for the last you know, 30 plus years with the mind and life dialogues. He, he all too well realizes the extraordinary potentials of working um, between these two amazing disciplines. And you're, as a contemplative neuroscientist, you embody this really brave, breathtaking new approach. And so I applaud you for it. I'm inspired by it. And to whatever extent I can continue to support it, most assuredly, let me know. But any other uh, final statements to, to our group? Anything you want to say to, to, before we wrap it up? And, and how can people contact you? How can they support you? Any, any ways that, that our community can actually, outside of what we just mentioned, um, reach out and be of some benefit to you? Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for saying all that. I really appreciate it. And it's just been such a great joy, you know, one of the great joys of my life, really, to be able to do and be involved with this research and working so closely with you and with Stephen LaBerge and, and other pioneers of the field. So it's... Um, it's really been an amazing adventure and I'm looking forward to seeing what we do going forward. Um, in terms of connecting with me right now, I've got a personal website which talks more about my research and you can find my our publications on there. Uh, it's just my name, benjaminbaird.org. Um, maybe we can post it somehow, but totally, totally. my contact information's on there. And you can also find me by looking looking me up at UW-Madison, uh, feel free to you know, send me an email or connect that way. Um, probably best way to reach me is just through, through email on my personal website. Terrific. Well, my dear friend, I can't wait for future encounters with you um, in the lab or elsewhere. Um, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I, for one, as usual, learn so much. You're, you have so much to offer in this arena. So all the best, my friend, and let's do it again sometime. Let's do it when we have the data on this MPE um, set of experiments and, and share it with the world. So we're super excited about the, the potentials of further exploring this stuff with you. Thank you so much for spending the time with us, my friend. Thanks so much for having me. It was fantastic. Really enjoyed the conversation. And likewise, that would be great. Let's, let's do it again. All the best. Absolutely. Take care. So much. Take care. 
Well, that's it for today. Thanks everybody for joining us and a big thanks to my friend Ben for sharing his remarkable research. Really looking forward to seeing what he's gonna come up with with this minimal phenomenal experience study. So if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. And until next time, pleasant dreams.